Uh, good morning. We are in 2 Samuel 15. Um, let me just kind of remind you what we're doing. We are looking at the story of Jesus in the Old Testament. And it might sound like, what? That's what we're doing. Uh, John 5.39, I have to emphasize this. Jesus says, you read the scriptures and in them you think they ha- you have eternal life, but these are they which testify of me. We read the scriptures this lens of how is the gospel being told over and over again in different kind of ways. This idea of maybe sin, rebellion, betrayal, the story of Jesus in different capacities or on, in different emphases are happening constantly throughout the Old Testament. We've talked about how in the life of David, David at his best is a beautiful and wonderful picture of Jesus. And David at his worst reveals our great need for Jesus. And so we, we're going through this as a way to just, how do we see that God has been telling us the story of the gospel from day one? That since Genesis 3, God even said that to, to Adam and to Eve. Basically says to the woman, hey, in your seed, you know, he, your seed shall crush the serpent's head. This idea from the very beginning that there will be the one who will come from you, come from woman, born of a virgin, and he'll crush the serpent's head. The idea is that we see the gospel just constantly repeated. So we're in 2 Samuel. If you've missed the last couple of weeks, let me just remind you, David started off really well. He's like, let's bring the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem. I want to build God a house here. We need a temple here. God says no to David. He'll say yes to his son Solomon. But he says, no, David, you can't build me one, but I'm going to build you a house forever. Then David blesses his enemies. David blesses Mephibosheth. Uh, David just is doing things right all the way till that infamous story of David and Bathsheba. Right? And we saw kind of from that story, yes, he repents. Yes, God says you're forgiven, but there's consequences. And this is kind of what we're walking through now. Right now, we're essentially seeing the consequences of that moment with him and Bathsheba. We're seeing that family chaos. If you were with us last week, what an intense, awesome passage. But last week was like one of those, that was one of those passages like, I have no desire to teach through this. But um, looking through that, and looking back at it, I really hope the Lord spoke and moved. And we looked at just that, that chaos between David's kids. One son, Amnon, we know he raped his, sis, his half-sister Tamar. Absalom's furious. He eventually kills Amnon. Now, this is kind of where we pick up the story. Uh, we see that Absalom has been on the run. He's been like fleeing David. Joab, we see last week in the, or in the chapter 14, he goes, come on back home. He convinces David. So actually here in chapter 15, Absalom is now back in Jerusalem. It's been seven years since his sister was raped. Five years ago, he killed his brother. He's been on the run. Three years on the run, two years in Jerusalem, not seeing his dad. And now we, we see kind of this interaction between Absalom and David. This is where we pick up now where David essentially has to flee all over again into the wilderness. If you guys were with us during 1 Samuel, you, you saw that David was constantly on the run from King Saul in the wilderness. He probably thought, my wilderness days are over. I'm in the palace now. I'm the king. But now we pick up with David, actually. We're going to be reading about him fleeing the palace, and he's back in the wilderness. And maybe that might be like similar to some of you, where you're like, I thought those days of God's training me in the wilderness, I thought those days were over, but those days are not over. There's still some work that God is, is doing in David's life. So David, we'll be reading about how he flees the palace. He, he goes in the wilderness. Different people are joining him along the way. And to me, you can't but help but see how this is actually a beautiful picture of, of Jesus. We're going to see a very, very similar, uh, really outline today. The king is betrayed. The king is on the run. He has some people with him, helping him, praying for him. We see him praying on the Mount of Olives. We see him weeping on the Mount of Olives. We see a very similar story. So I want us to just see uh, how we can just really just see Jesus in this. 
So why don't we do this? We're not going to read. There's 39 verses, so we're not going to read right now. We're going to read kind of throughout, but let's just pray. And uh, the title today is simply this, Surrendering It All, Surrendering It All. I believe um, this is a turning point for David in many ways. He's been kind of soaking in his sin, and we're going to see him kind of wake up again to trusting God. So let's pray, and we'll give this time to the Lord. Father, um, we just want to say thank you. Thank you that we can start off this day by joining in with thousands of churches around the world, entering into your throne. God, we thank you that we can join in with this, the saints of old, the saints in heaven, crying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Father, we thank you that this is just um, not unique to us, that there's so many believers, not just here in Florida or in the States, but around the globe, saying Jesus is risen, he's alive. And Father, I ask that you would just speak to us as we go through this book uh, of Samuel. God, we ask that you would open our hearts to how you told us and you showed us the gospel time and time again, that all of these things were a shadow and Christ is the substance. And we thank you, Jesus. We thank you just for even in, in failure, even in the wilderness, God, you teach and you speak. And Lord, help us to learn. Help us not repeat um, what we, we see here. Lord, I, I ask that as it says in Romans, that this would give us hope, that we'd have hope that would come from the scriptures, Lord. And so, Jesus, we just look to you now and ask that you'd be glorified in your name. Amen. Uh, when I was in high school, I've shared maybe different high school stories, but this is one where, um, you know, as a Christian in high school, and you're trying to figure out, like, wh- how can I have fun and not cross the line? Like, how can I have fun and not, you know, sin, but maybe, I don't know. It's questionable. I remember we had a pastor friend who, uh, a, a friend in high school, his dad was a pastor, and he'd say, hey, go have fun, do crazy things, don't sin. And you're like, I don't know what that means. So we would try to have fun and, and you know, just do the thing. So here's something that we would do. Uh, in high school, sometimes after basketball games, my team or random friend group would come together. And I don't know why, they just don't ask questions why. Just we did this. We'd go to hotels and we would like walk in a hotel, just random hotels that we were, were not there. And this would be like after some sort of event or game or whatever. And we'd look at the security guard and just make eye contact and just start running. And I don't know why, we just do that. We wanted to like pretend like we did something wrong. I don't know. We didn't do anything wrong. We just walk in, look at him. We act like we're scared. And, just start, and they're like, hey, no, stop. Like they just immediately assume we did something. So we would do that. And that, that was kind of our way of doing some of these things. And, I, you know, we have many of those stories. But I remember one time we went to this, like, nice, I think it was a Hilton. We went to, like, a nice hotel, made eye contact with a security guard, and there's, like, 10 of us. We just start running as fast as we can. And then, like, you see them on the walkie-talkie getting a radio. And, like, we're going up on those nice, like, glass elevators where you can kind of see out. And we see the security guard, like, below us trying to, like, guess. I don't know. He, he went to the wrong floor. But we see him, like, looking at us, like, through the other elevator. We're looking at him. And that's what we do. It's just stupid fun. Um, one day, though, we did that. We're running through the hotel. Um, we got split up. And some of us went out on a fire escape and down the thing, whatever, and out back to our cars. And that of general, it was so much fun. You know, I don't know. You're 16. It's just so stupid. Don't do this. Do this. Um, but it was just so much fun. And one of the kids, uh, you know, he needs a shout out for this. Sean Mandel. just a punk. We didn't like Sean. Sean Mandel got caught by the security guards. And Sean, in his mind, they told him, just tell us the names of who is with you. And you're not going to press. You didn't do anything wrong. We won't press. But you have to tell us the names. So he gave the names of all of us. He, he turned us over. And then he told us later, he's like, yeah, I gave your names and phone number. We're like, why would you do that? Like, you didn't have to do that. Like, there's no cops. Like, what are you doing? But he gave our, you know, in his mind, betrayal was the only way he could benefit. It was the only way he could get out of it. Uh, here's kind of our story. This is the story of Absalom's betrayal. And in, to his mind, it's to his benefit. 
If I betray my dad, it's going to benefit me. Uh, This is really a tragic story. David's kingdom is going to be split from this point on for a while. Uh, You see David and Saul, his father-in-law. Now it's David and his son. David's constantly been on the run. We're going to see that actually Absalom, it says, steals the hearts of men. He stole the people's hearts. He's a great politician. And we're going to see David just kind of walk. And I want to understand David's perspective at this point. David's like, man, I've blown it. Like I've been, you know, what I did with Bathsheba. What I let my kids do. Like what Amnon and Absalom. And like, I think in some ways he feels like we talked about last week, incapacitated to address the real issues. And in some ways, David's sin, not in some ways, in many ways, a huge part, we talked about his sin of omission. He's just so passive. As we read this, we're going to see David kind of, it feels passive. He's going to be like, let's just get out of the palace. Let's go. However, I really do believe a change is happening in David. We're going to see David in this kind of moment just go, you know what? I'm going to stop trying to force things, but I'm going to trust God's sovereignty in this moment. And I think we see a perspective shift, like David is becoming back to the old David in some ways. He's going to be in this wilderness. And I want you to see this because um, if you think that your wilderness season was done, maybe it's not done. Maybe you're like, I've been there. I've done that. God worked on me in that way. And it's like, maybe God's like, I want you to go back to the wilderness because I have some things I still want to work on. And this is kind of going to be the next couple of chapters. We're going to see that. And it's tragic. We're going to see betrayal. We're going to see eventually his son die. And it's just one of those things for David. He's going to have to walk through this. And there's so much of this that we see in the text that we'll see of Jesus, but I just want to read it. Um, here's kind of the points today. Here's how we'll break down the text. And there's some other things as well. But here's the first point. The king is betrayed. The king is not alone. God brings him some friends that you would not expect. The king trusts in God's will. And the king prays on the Mount of Olives. Here's kind of the, this is kind of the layout. This is what we see happen in our text. The king is betrayed. The king is not alone. The king trusts in God's will. And the king prays on the Mount of Olives. Let's pick up in verse 1. The king is betrayed. Let's read 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 1. We're going to read through verse 17. Here's what it says. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, from what city are you? And when he said, uh, your servant is, is, is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but there's no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, oh, that I were the judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Then, th- thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Verse 7. And at the end of the, the four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Geshur and Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I'll offer worship to the Lord. So the king David said to him, go in peace. So he rose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel saying, uh, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200, uh, sorry, move that. Uh, went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, David's counselor. David loved this guy. 
from, from the city of Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. Verse 13, and a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, he said, arise, let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out and all his household after him, and the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out and all the people after him, and they halted at the last house. All right, here's the story. Uh, Absalom finally makes it back into Jerusalem. He was three years gone in hiding. Two years he's not speaking to his dad. This is finally where he speaks to his dad. Dad, can I go make a, a sacrifice to the Lord? I made a vow. I, I need to keep this vow. But he's been seven years since his sister uh, got raped, five years since he killed his brother. And so you see him back in Jerusalem, and he says he's at the gate. Now, uh, Absalom is probably the most picture-perfect politician. I mean, he, in so many ways, he's trying to put on a front. I mean, I want you to see that, but it's interesting. Now, actually, in chapter 14, verse 25, if you read it, he's the most handsome man in the land. I'll just read it because the verse is kind of really unique how it says this about Absalom. Chapter 14, verse 25, it says, Now in all of Israel, there is no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. How would you like that to be said about you in the Bible? All right? It's like, man, he's perfect. No, like he's a beautiful man. That's just Absalom, right? It says this too. He actually had 50 men running before him and he had these chariots. It was unnecessary. I don't know if you know, he's trying to really just like show outwardly, look at me. Like I look like a man worthy of your respects. Like I look like a king. 50 men, they're basically the guys running like, make way, make way. And he'd be riding on chariots. And this was like his way of trying to get attention. This is the way of, of the people going, wow, this guy's, this guy's special. Coming in on, on horses and chariots. David, I think, would like write this about him. It's my guess, Psalm 20. David says, some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. We're actually told the king was not supposed to ride around in, in Deuteronomy on horses like this. The, the idea was like, he wanted to create the appearance of pride the ego. He, I mean, he's, again, handsome. 50 men go before him. He's on horses. They're going, this is what a king is like. This is what the king should be doing. Actually, it's interesting to me. Samuel, Samuel, remember the, the prophet Samuel, the book Samuel? Samuel was the one who warned and said, your future king will one day try to do this. Prophetically, listen to this. It's 1 Samuel eight eleven. Samuel says, uh, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. This didn't happen until Absalom. Absalom's fulfilling Samuel's warning. He's just saying, this guy is going to try to come across as like, wow, there's something different. There's something special. Notice people are like, I have an issue I want to bring before the king because the king was kind of all of that. He'd also be the judge. He'd be the ruler. He'd be the, you know, courthouse. He's everything. And he's standing at the gate. This is kind of compared to it's like modern day city hall. You know, and Absalom is basically intercepting them and saying, no, come to me. What is it? Oh, if I were the king, I would give you justice, right? And you see how he's just trying to sway the hearts of the people. He's manipulative. He doesn't really love the people. He doesn't really care for the people. You can see how this is interesting too. They would go to pay him homage and it says he would go to them and kiss them. It's like, as they were going to him to be like, oh, it's Absalom, the son of the king. He'd be like, let me kiss, like, let me take the first step. And they're like, wow, I was touched by the king's son. I was kissed by the king's son. And he's basically swaying the hearts of men towards him. And I want you to see that. Here's what we learn from Absalom. Because in many ways, he was the king that they thought the, the way the king should look like. 
But in reality, he didn't love the people. He didn't go to the war for people like David. David gave his life time and time again for the people. He didn't do any of that. He's just doing all the outward things. And in reality, he's just using them. Here's the thing for Absalom. People were essentially just tools to him. People were a means to an end. You know, this for me, before we move on, it obviously raises that question for us. How do you view people? How, why do you interact with people? Why do you maybe want to join a small group? Or why do you want to get to know people? Is there some sort of other motive you have? Is there some sort of, I have this business and I want to, like, what, what is it? What we see with Absalom was he had a different motive. It wasn't because he really cared for them. He knew that if he could seal their hearts, he could maybe one day be the king, and, that, and it worked. I mean, we have to ask that question of, um, do you use people as a means to an end? Because this is how we see Absalom kind of take it. And it's just one of those things as we, as we try to know each other, love each other, get to know each other. And listen, we don't want to be on edge, like, why are they trying to get to know me? Don't be that person either. Like, we don't want to be the person that's like, oh, I think they're weird. But there has to be the sense of, like, I genuinely love you. I care for you. And Absalom, they was doing that outwardly, but inwardly he was far, far from it. I love what Henry Nouwen says. He says, it seems easier to be God than to love God. Easier to control people than to love people. Easier to own life than to love life. That it's at times like, man, do we really love God in this pursuit? Or are you really trying to use, use someone or something? And you just see this kind of, this being questioned in him. It's interesting. It says Jesus said this, but it's said about, Jesus says this about himself. He says, I have come in my father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. There's this idea of like, man, I've come in my name. You don't receive me. But this is like the Absalom. This is like the heart of the people. It's, it's true. He comes in his own name and they receive him. This has happened time and time again in Israel's history. David started off good. He's kind of gone astray. The people's hearts are mixed at this point in time. And Absalom's like, this is the time for me to cap- capitalize on this. And I want you to see that he's using all this. He's actually, think about this. He's using worship as like a guise to basically commit treason. He's like, I need to go worship God, Dad. Dad, I need to go to Hebron. And in reality, he's talking to Hithophel. That is one of David's counselors, one of the people that be, they trust Ahithophel. He's using him, come, like anoint me king. I'm the king. He's basically made king in the people's eyes at Hebron. They're not really sure why they're there. They realize he's king. Word gets back to David and David's now on the run. And I just want to see, again, he's constantly just using people in this way. And he betrays the king. But this brings us to our, our next part. And here's what I want us to see in this. Throughout the story now, David's going to basically be on the run, right? We just see that. He's going to be on the run for a little while. As he's on the run... And this chapter, the next chapter, we're going to see different people encounter him, people who love him, people who are weeping and going to him, and people who are actually mocking him, belittling him, yelling at him. You see that in chapter 16, David's like, no, no, let him do that. Let him mock me. I deserve it. Let him say those things. But what we're going to see is people basically have a choice. Do I serve Absalom or King David? King David is God's anointed still. As much as he's blown it, He's still, the God has in, he's still the king God has in mind. So it's like, do I serve the, this king that God's anointed, or do I serve this king? And there's essentially now this battle between two kingdoms. This is kind of the storyline of the Bible, a battle between two kingdoms. If you want to look at like the story of the Bible, in many ways you could say, man, there's a battle for the kingdoms. The kingdom of God, and, and Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, the kingdom of Satan. There's essentially two, there's like two kingdoms. There's not really this other option. If you're serving your kingdom, that's part of the kingdom of Satan. It's either like, what kingdom are you working for, serving, giving yourself to? You're either like trying to advance the kingdom of God or the kingdom of man. 
and you see kind of now these kingdoms kind of coming out. Now, many times, it's not always a, pi- a perfect picture of those things. You have types of things in the Bible, like you have Jonah as a type of Jesus. He's in the whale, the whale, or the whale or the fish for three days, three nights. He's a type of Jesus. But at the same time, Jonah was bitter, angry, didn't want to be there. He went unwillingly. Like, it wasn't a perfect example, but Jesus compares Jonah to him. Jesus is like, hey, just like the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth, it's just like Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale. The, the idea of that, just saying there's, there's certain types of Jesus or pictures of Jesus, they're not perfect, but you can kind of see how it's a picture of Jesus. David is far from where he needs to be, far from perfect, but you're going to see him be like an anti-type of Jesus. Like, you're going to see him kind of reflect Jesus in some ways, but also not. It's never perfectly perfect, but you're kind of getting this picture of two kingdoms being established. And here's the idea. Either you follow David or you don't. Either you're saying, I'm, I'm with God's anointed king, or you're not. And there's now this decision people have to make. And you can see this like conflict in them. Do I want to serve this king who has a lot of backing, or the king who's on the run? Like his stock's going down, his stock's going up. Who do, who do you jump on board for? Usually the stock going up, not going down. But there's like this, you see this kind of internal battle, and it's interesting again, because I get it. In our world, in our moment, I, I, you see people, I've seen, so many people I see like are on the fence. Like, do I want to serve Jesus? But it's not really a popular thing. Do I serve the king who's popular or do I serve the unpopular one? Ah, and there's like this, you see this internal conflict and that's what's happening. So we'll pick up number two. Number two is this. The king is not alone though. He's not alone. God actually brings him some kind of unexpected guests. Read verse 18. Verse 18, we'll pick up the story. It says, and all his servants passed by him and all the Cherethites and all the Pelethites and all 600 Gittites who had followed him from Gath passed on before the king. Then the king said to Ittai, the Gittite, he says, why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday. This guy had bad timing. You came only yesterday. <laughs> He's like, and, and shall I today make you wander about with us? Since I go, I know not where. Go back and take your brothers with you. And may the Lord show steadfast love. Remember that word a few weeks back, uh, said <laughs> that covenantal love. May the Lord show you covenantal love and faithfulness to you. But it's how I answered the king, as the Lord lives, and as my Lord the king lives, wherever my Lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. And David said to Ittai, go then, and all his men, and the little ones who were with him, and all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by. And the king crossed the book, the brook Kidron, and all the people passed by on toward the wilderness. This is interesting. Um, I have to point this out. Ittai is a very interesting character. He's not really mentioned. He, he's called Ittai the Gittite from Gath. It's a fun mouth teaser. Ittai the Gittite from Gath. Um, Gath, where's Gath? Remember Gath? That's where Goliath's from. That's where the Philistines are. Uh, he's, a, he's a Philistine. He has 600 other Philistines with him, essentially. It's really interesting, this story to me. Because David, we know, also kind of worked for the Philistines, if you want to go back and listen to that. He also kind of had some, you know, but they were his enemies. Like, he killed their hero, Goliath, years ago. They know David. David, if you remember, was kind of like a spy in some ways with the Philistines at one point in time, and obviously he won some of them over. But you have this guy, Ittai, the Gittite from Gath, and he's a Philistine, and he's like, I'm with you. David, I'm with you. It's fascinating to me that David went from killing his enemies to converting his enemies. At one point, he's killing the Philistines, and now he's converting them where Ittai and 600 others are with him. What I want you to see in this is as David is on the run, he is not alone. He actually has some friends God brings him. And I'm very thankful for this. You know, we, we read about David and Jonathan. God always had like a friend for David in his deepest, darkest moments. Jonathan was that guy. Now we're going to actually see this guy, Hushai, 
We see Ittai. We see these different guys. It says they were a friend. And here's what I love. Um, in his deepest, darkest moments, God's always like, I have someone there with you. Like, I'm going to bring you Ittai, the, ga- the, the Philistine, the one who should be your enemy, but is your friend. It doesn't make sense that he's actually with you. Has God ever actually brought you a friend where you're like, we don't make sense, but this is awesome, right? Like, this is not, this is not, we really shouldn't be friends on paper. But in reality, like, I'm very, th- I'm very thankful. I, I want you to, like, see it this way. Um, there's going to be times you're going to need to look for God's grace when you don't feel like you sense it or see it at all. And in many times, it's going to be through the people God brings alongside you. I mean, like, David's on the run. His kingdom's split. Like, he's losing, he's losing the kingdom. And this is a moment where he has to, like, see in this moment, I actually have some people with me. And you know what it's like to be alone, and you know what it's like to have people with you. And there's something about having Ittai going, man, I have this guy who's with me. I love what one pastor, his name's Tim Chaddock, he says this, if Satan can't blind you to see the sin in your life, he will try to blind you to see the blessings in your life. Oh, this is so true. If he can't blind you to the sin in your life, because he will, sometimes we don't see the sin in our life. David had that season. You don't see the sin. But if he, if he can't get you that way, maybe he'll just try to get you to not see the blessings in your life. And I, why I'm trying to bring up the friends is just saying that you sometimes need to stand back, take a step back and look at, go, God, thank you that I'm not alone in this. Thank you that there's 600 of these men from Gath. And some other names are mentioned, other people are mentioned, but thank you, God, that someone that should be my enemy is my friend. That David went from killing these people to converting them. And, and, and honestly, Ittai, many people point out, it's a, he's a, he calls himself a foreigner. It's a beautiful picture that though Israel wasn't with him, the foreigners were. That's fascinating. It's a beautiful picture of like Jesus was rejected by his own, but the Gentiles are going, yes, we love you. Obviously, the first disciples were Jews, and that's how the church birthed, was birthed through, the, through just the Jewish people. So beautiful. But Jesus said, I came to my own, my own received me not. The point being, you see so often the idea was like, no, this is supposed to be, a, you know, the children of Abraham are those who have the same faith as Abraham. That's the idea. You're a son or daughter of Abraham if you have the same faith as him. And you see this foreigner now, like, I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm going to be with you. I'm walking through this with you. It's interesting to me. If you've ever read 1 Corinthians, um, we went through 2 Corinthians uh, not too long ago, but if you've ever read through 1 Corinthians, it's basically 14 chapters of Paul calling out the Corinthians for their sin. They are the church gone wild. Like they're the church that just kind of lost their mind. They're doing some crazy stuff. Paul's like, I love you guys, but I got to call all your sin, right? But it's interesting. Here's what I love about this. Paul starts off 1 Corinthians chapter one. Here's what he says. He says, I thank my God always concerning you. And then for 14 chapters, he just tears them apart. But what I love about that He's like, I, I look at you and I thank God for you. He's looking at Ittai, who should be his enemy, and he's like, you know what? Go, get out. He's like, no, I'm not. Where you go, I go. If you live, I live. If you die, I die. You see such like a, it sounds like to me when I read this, I just hear Peter's voice. In some ways, Peter's like, Lord, they can all deny you. I will not deny you. I'll die for you. But you see like this like person who's like, I'm going to be with you. It's this unexpected friend. You know, I want to also make sure I, I point this out, but when Jesus was at his lowest moment, Disciples did scatter. And if you remember, who was with him at the cross? Women. And it's like the unexpected person or persons you would imagine. This is Ittai, the unexpected person you'd imagine with him at his lowest moment. And here's what it says in verse 23. The king crossed the, book, the brook Kidron, and all the people passed onward toward the wilderness. I really do believe that phrase, toward the wilderness. There's some, it's just trying to point this out. He crosses over this brook. He's leaving Jerusalem. He's leaving the city of David. He's leaving the palace. He's crossing this brook. He's making his way to the Mount of Olives. That's where he's making his way. But as he crosses this brook toward the wilderness, right, kind of like you see, the, if you actually go to Israel, you see the Mount of Olives, kind of go down the slope for a while, you'll hit the Dead Sea. Like it's the desert. 
it's the wilderness. There's nothing there. There's no life. But the phrase, the wilderness, the idea you see in scriptures is like, this is where God does a lot of testing. This is where God does a lot of refining. This is where God tries to do his best work in us. And it's like, David had that. And God's like, let's go back to the refinery. Like, let's go back. We're going toward the wilderness. And I just wonder if David's like, here we go again. You know, I just can't imagine all those emotions. Like he's in a palace. It's crazy. David did really good, really good as a shepherd. He did really good in the fields. He did really good in the wilderness. He didn't do so good in the palace. And I just had to spend some time thinking about that. He does pretty good in the wilderness again. He seems to learn for the most part after that. But God's like, we're not done with you yet. That is comforting to know, by the way. It's, it's, don't just view it as judgment. View this as God's love. I'm not done with you yet. Maybe it's time to go back to the, the wilderness. This is what happens with David. So he's going to that. So we see he's betrayed. We see he's not alone. We'll go to number three, verse 24. The king, David, he trusts in God's will. Look what it says in verse 24. This to me is the turning point. Verse 24. It says, uh, and Abathar, Abathar came up and behold, Zadok came also with all the Levites. So the Levites come. They're bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. Like what? If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he, ha- if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok, the priest, are you, are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your two sons, Ahimaaz, your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abathar. See, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until you come, until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. All right, this to me is incredibly important. He sees the ark of God being carried out of the city. He goes, what are you doing here? That's not supposed to come with me. And I, I, I want to comment on that in just a second, but that's really profound. Remember how Eli treated the ark? Whenever they went to war, Eli would take the ark of the covenant. It's like some kind of special relic to him. It was like his safety thing. David goes, this doesn't belong to me. This belongs to the people. That is a good king. I think David started, there's some turning point things happening here. He could be, you know what he could do? You know what he could do right now with the ark of the God? He could be like, hey, Absalom, look who has the ark. Come on. Like, if you have the ark, he's like, I have the people. I have God. If I have the ark, I have God. But he's like, no, no, this is not, this is not my, this, this belongs to the people. Go back. Go back to Jerusalem. I'm not going to try to use this as some way to sway the people. I'm not going to use this as some means to an end. I'm not going to trust in this physical thing. I'm actually going to trust in the God of that thing. And there's something different about David at this point to me. He actually says something profound. He's like, bring it back. He's like, if I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, I will see both it and its dwelling place. And if not... Let the Lord just do what seems good to him. That is a unique place to be in. What I see happening in David at this point in time is like, God, I trust you. Do you remember what, Dave, do you remember what Job said in Job 13 after he went through just the loss of his family, his, everything he owns? Job 13, his friends are giving him terrible advice. In Job 13, it says, Job says to God, he goes, God, though you slay me, yet I will trust you. This is where David's at. God, though you slay me, I'll trust you. If I find favor in your eyes, I'm going to see this back in the city again, and I'm going to see the dwelling place. Like, he, he actually believes he'll see the temple. That's unique faith. David's showing unique faith. I'll see it and its dwelling place. But if not, let the Lord do what seems good to him. I trust him. This is David's way of basically saying, I surrender. I want you to see that. I think that surrender is um, underrated. 
I think that surrender is misunderstood as weakness when it's crazy power. I think when you say, you know what, Lord, not my way, but your way. Not my will, but your will. That's what David's doing here in verse 25 and 26. He, he's surrendering over to the will of God. And I think God's like, yes. And notice, like, right when he crosses into the wilderness, it's like he crosses the brook, it's almost like this turning point. Light bulb goes off. All right. I'm done fighting. I'm done trying to make it my way. I'm done trying, I'm done trying to take matters into my own hands. Lord, I'm going to trust you in this moment. This really is a profound moment for, for David. Um, I love what Charles Spurgeon says. He says, when you go through a trial, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which you lay your head. This is David. David's going through a trial and he's going to say, Lord, I trust your sovereignty. The sovereignty of God is not just some scapegoat or some excuse. It really is a way, hopefully when viewed right, you can actually lay your head at rest. Because you're saying, I serve a God who is good. I serve a God who loves me and cares for me and has the best in mind for me. And David is essentially surrendering himself over to the character of God, which also is a humbling and scary thing because he knows he deserves judgment. He's like, and God can do what he wants. And God would not be wrong if he slayed me. I'm going to trust him though. And there really is something about, you come to this point in your life, you're like, you know what? I'm not so good at doing this thing called life. <laughs> like, I'm actually really bad at decision making. So I'm going to surrender it over to you. That's what's happening with David. It's like, I don't trust me anymore. You know what, Lord, I trust you. What you want to do, go ahead and do. You guys with me on this? This to me, is, this really is huge and it's a turning point. Henry Blackaby says this, which is profound. He's just super inspirational. He says, the fact, listen, the fact that God can bring character development and personal growth out of any situation is conditional on people's willingness to submit to God's will. God is sovereign over every life, but those who yield their will to him will be shaped according to his purposes. When God directs a life for his purpose, all of his life is a school. No experience, good or bad, is ever wasted. God doesn't squander people's time. He doesn't ignore their pain. He brings not only healing, but growth out of even the worst experiences. Every relationship can be God's instrument to mature a person's character. Yes, God is sovereign, but are you surrendering your will over to the God who's sovereign? This is what's happening with David. Yes, God, you're sovereign, but I'm surrendering over like my will over to you. Another way to put it is, um, try to write out this way. David is not surrendering to his circumstances, but to the God that is over his circumstances. This is the difference to me. There's a way to go, up. Oh, life's just too hard. I surrender over to like the circumstances itself. It's gonna, it's, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. You're surrendering over to the circumstances, not to the God over the circumstances. David's like, I'm not, I'm going to surrender over to the God over this. Not just to this moment, my son's chasing me and, you know, he's going to take the kingdom. I'm not just surrendering over to that, but I'm surrendering over to the one who's over that. That's who I'm surrendering to. It's one way to like, so what, there's one way to give up by just surrendering over to your circumstances. Don't do that. But surrender over to the God over that circumstance. That's not giving up. That's just surrender to God. That's saying not my will, your will be done. This prayer thing that, this like internal thing that David is saying to the people, to God, to the priests, he's really reflecting, again, this, something Jesus prayed on that same mountain. It's in Luke 22, verse 42. Jesus said, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus prays and says a very similar thing. David's like, ah, I want to see this. If God finds favor, I'll see this. But if he doesn't, let's, let, whatever seems good to him, let him do it. Not my will, his will. Jesus later come on the same mountain and go, Father, please remove this cup from me. 
this cup of bearing the sin of mankind, separation from you, the cup of your wrath. Like I'm gonna have to carry the sin and weight of the world and I've always had fellowship with the Father and for a moment, a period of time, I'm gonna take on the sin of the world. I'm gonna be a few days separating the sense from you. Not my will, your will be done. And this is, what, this is where David's at. He's praying this. Lord, I just, I surrender to you. I, I trust you in this moment. I love how he says, if I find favor in the eyes of the Lord. You know what David's ultimately surrendering in when he says, if I find favor? Obviously what that word favor is, it's the Hebrew version of grace. What David is saying is, I'm surrendering over to grace. This is everything. I don't know how to, I, I can't, this is huge. He's like, if I find favor in the eyes of God, it says over and over again, like Noah found favor in the eyes of God. It's this, it's a Hebrew version for grace. He's like, I'm surrendering over to the grace of God. Let me say this. That might sound terrifying, but it's the most beautiful thing you can do. And you say, God, I'm not going to try to do this in my flesh anymore. I'm surrendering over to your grace. By grace, by grace, by grace, like by grace alone in Christ alone through faith alone. But it's like, I'm surrendering over by grace. If I find favor, I'm trusting that your grace, God, is going to be at work in this. There's something about just going, God, I I surrender over to your grace. I I, I don't even want to try to do this. I'm surrendering over to your favor, to your grace. This is what he's surrendering over to. This is so important. It's scary a little bit to like let go of control and to say, I'm I'm giving it to you. I'm trusting you. If you want me to live, great. If not, I trust you. Though you slay me, I will trust you. This is where he's at. He tells the priests, he's like, send your kids back, send the ark back. The priests are, or the priest kids are eventually going to be spies. They're going to work with this other guy we're going to read about in a second. But they're going to be people who bring word back to David. And he's kind of set this up. David's becoming wise again. He's seeking God again. He's trusting again. He's kind of putting some peace after being kind of that passive, that, okay, Absalom, do what you want. Okay, Amnon. Now he's kind of starting to wake up and go, okay, God, I'm going to trust you. Number four is this. The king prays on the Mount of Olives. We'll actually jump now in verse 30, but I want to see what he does next. So he sends the ark back. Crazy faith. I'm not going to use the ark as a way to manipulate the people. Verse 30. But David, it says he went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives. He's on the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads. And they went up, weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel, who's among the conspirators with Absalom, they're with them. And David said, oh Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. While David was coming to the summit where God was worshiped, it's a huge phrase. He's coming to the summit where God was worshiped. Behold, Hashai, the archite, came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. So he's grieving with David. David said to him, if you go on with me, you will be a burden to me. What a good friend to say that to a friend. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant. O king, as I have been your father's servant in time past, so now I'll be your servant. Then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. Are not Zadok and Abathar the priests, the ones we just read about, with you there? So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zadok and Abathar the priests. Behold, their two sons are with them, Ahimaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abathar's son. And by them, you shall send to me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. I want to just, again, paint the, the ending of this picture. They're head up the Mount of Olives. They're weeping. They're crying. Everyone's in tears. Someone's like tells them, you know Ahithophel? Yeah, he's now with Absalom. He was a co-conspirator in the whole thing. He's a part of the coup. Like he, he, he's, he's with him. Ahithophel, you know who that is? 
that's Bathsheba's granddad. You can see it's like obviously holding bitterness. What happened to his daughter, his grandson-in-law, Uriah? I get a chance to overthrow David. I'm going to. David trusted him. David loved him. He actually seems to be a person who, who David really took his advice. It says in the next chapter, when Ahithophel spoke, it says both Absalom and David heard him as if he spoke the word of God. Like that's how, that's how highly they viewed his counsel. So now Ahithophel, close friend, his son betrays him, a close friend betrays him. It's believed that David wrote Psalm 55 and Psalm 41 based off Ahithophel. I just want you to like catch that or write that down. Psalm 55, Psalm 41 probably came out of response to that. I'll read a couple of verses just so you can kind of see the context of David's heart. Uh, it says this in Psalm 55. For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house, we walked in the throng. Psalm 41, it's, he, David writes, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me. And raise me up that I may repay him. Even David is just, just heartbroken by this friend, Ahithophel, who, who seems to betray him. They're weeping. Hushai comes to him and is like, man, I'm with you. David's like, you're just gonna be a burden to me. Why don't you just go back? David sends him back. But Hushai becomes this advocate for him. He's like, I served your father, Absalom, and now I'm gonna serve you. And that seems to work. And God uses Hushai to actually do what David does, which is this. David prayed a unique prayer. I, want you, I have to point this out. Notice the prayer David, uh, David prayed again. What does he say in verse 31? He says, Oh Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. God answers this prayer. Here's what I love about this quick. This is amazing to me. This guy spoke a lot of wisdom. David heard it. Absalom heard it. But David prays this prayer and God answers this prayer. And I have to point this prayer out. Um, was this a long prayer? Was this a super eloquent prayer? It's just, please God, let this guy's counsel be foolishness. And that's what's going to happen. I love how the Lord hears that prayer. By the way, like, I don't want to pass over um, prayers that are answered in scriptures because sometimes we can take that for granted. Not every prayer is answered. Not every prayer is answered the way in which they hope. This prayer is answered in, in, in that way in which he hopes. And I, I'm very thankful for that because sometimes you wonder, like, does, this, does prayer even work? You think, do I have to make it longer? Like the lo- do I have to make it like, sound really eloquent? Sometimes you get people and they're praying and you're like, you're, you're praying in Old King James. How do you do that? Like, and it sounds like super, and God's like, wow, I haven't heard that prayer since like 1683. That's beautiful. And sometimes we think like the more you know, ancient it sounds, the better God's going to hear. David's just like, oh God, I, I just pray, please turn this guy's counsel into foolishness. God hears it. God answers it. He sends Hushai to work with the priest's sons to be essentially spies in the camp. And we're going to see this play out. And I want you to read chapter 16. I want you to read chapter 17 this week. I want you to kind of follow the story. But I want you to see just this story of David. It's, it's very interesting to me what's going on. It's like fascinating how all of this is playing out. It says, as he's weeping on the Mount of Olives. I love what Tozer says. He says, the Bible was written in tears, and to tears it will yield its best treasures. There is something about David weeping, his people weeping, Jesus weeping on that same mount. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you like mother hen gathers her chicks, but you were not willing. It's Jesus in the garden the night he was betrayed. He's in the garden on the slope of the Mount of Olives praying, praying, turning sweat into blood, just heavy prayer. The same mountain David's great, 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 great grandson would be praying on. The same mountain he would also be looking, thinking, I've been betrayed. The people who I love the most betrayed me. They gave me up. 
In John chapter 18, it says something interesting. It's only like reference in the Gospels to this, but in John 18 verse 1, it says this. It says, Jesus went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron. There's so many parallels of being in this city, being loved by the people, then being betrayed by the people, then crossing the brook Kidron, then going to the Mount of Olives, then weeping, then praying on the mount. This place of worship where they also worshiped. The place where Jesus also worshiped. There's so many parallels how there will be another one who will come from David, another, this other son of David, this, this great, great, great grandson of David who would also be betrayed, also cross the same brook, also weep on the same mount. But the, just like this one was betrayed because of his own sin, this one is going to be betrayed and bear the sin. And there really is a difference between the two, obviously. I, I try to write it this way. On the Mount of Olives, Jesus was not weeping for his sin like David, but Jesus was weeping in the Mount of Olives because he would bear our sin. There's just this parallels you see here of like, okay, put them up again, the points. The king is betrayed. Yep. The king is not alone. Yep. The disciples, the women at the cross. The, tring, the king trusts in God's will, not my will, but your will. The, the king prays in the Mount of Olives. This is what we see Jesus doing. This is the, another king that says, remember David's, remember all these, like, the whole point is that when I read this, like, I can't ignore these big things. I can't ignore these things and saying, all of this is to create this longing for the same one who will go through this, who will walk through this, but for redemption for the people. Not because of the, his own sin, but because of our sin. He walks through the same things to bear our sin, to bear our weight. And we have a better king, obviously. The whole point of David and David's story many times is to say, there is one coming who's a better king. There's one coming who's not creating chaos because of his son, but he's entering the chaos and he's burying that sin for his people. And that is King Jesus. And when you read these stories and you, you kind of go, oh, I want to see Jesus. And Jesus is all over this text to me. His is the house. Jesus, God says, I'll establish your house forever. We see this established in the person of Jesus. This is that kingdom that has no end. Now listen, it's going to be broken. It's going to be divided. We're going to see more chaos and conflict. But you see these kingdoms at war with each other, essentially, and ultimately David's kingdom prevails. For a while, you're wondering in chapter 16 and 17, who's going to win this? Ultimately, David's kingdom prevails. We're kind of in that time of, man, who's going to win this? It feels like we're losing the culture war. It feels like we're losing this war. But ultimately, we know Jesus' kingdom rules and reigns forever. We know what kingdom will win. We're kind of in that time, time though, like, ah, oh, this feels weird. Listen, I would say this. Don't be the Absalom who's trying to build your kingdom in the meantime. Be David. As much as he was a sinful, terrible example, he was God's anointed. My point is I'm very thankful, though I am sinful, though I mess up, though I, I break the law of God, the whole thing is like, I've called, don't you know First John 2, you're anointed. You've been called to this. Like, let's build his kingdom. Let's be part of what Jesus is doing. He is bearing our sin. By his stripes, we are healed. And here's what we're going to do. That night that Jesus crossed the, the brook Kidron, the night that he prayed on the Mount of Olives, that's the same night he took communion with his disciples. And we're just going to do that. We're going to take communion. Communion is a way for us to just remember this truth, that we have a new covenant with God, that Jesus shed his blood for the forgiveness of sins and gave his body up for us. He was that sacrifice that satisfied the righteous wrath of God. We take that little cup and we say, Jesus, by your blood, by your stripes, we're healed. We look at that little cracker and say, Jesus, you gave up your body. Your body was pierced, filled with holes. I take this little cracker, filled with holes, and remember your body was broken and pierced for me. And we just, look, we just take this time to celebrate what Jesus did. Um, I don't want to get lost in this. I don't get too sidetracked. I just want to say this. I want you to kind of take some time personally and just enjoy your Savior 
pray over your communion. Remember how Jesus did what David did, but his purpose was for redemption and reconciliation, not because of his sin, but because he bore our sin. Yes? Let's do this. Let's pray, and we're going to spend some time in worship and communion. Father, we just want to say thank you so much that we can open up your word and just just see how, God, from the very beginning, you've been showing us that there would be the son of David who would bear our sin, who also had to be betrayed, be persecuted, because, not of his sin, but because of ours, and we just look to you and say thank you. Thank you that we have this new covenant. Thank you that we can sit and just remember for a moment, God, that we have relationship with you because of what Jesus did for us. And so, Lord, I just ask that um, this would not just be some thing we go through, this little cup, this little cracker, this, little, this thing we walk through and we're just done. Lord, we want to celebrate now and give thanks now because, God, without you, we are nothing. God, but we thank you that you gave your body for us. You bought us at a price. The price was your body and your blood. Lord, you gave the most precious thing you had. We were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of the lamb. And we just say thank you. Thank you for that. Lord, we look to you now as we just slow down. We remember the fact that your blood was shed for our forgiveness, that your body was broken so we could be made whole. Thank you, Jesus. We look to you now. We just want to praise you now. We want to sing to you now. We want to join in with the churches around the world who take communion and, and just remember this day that one day you will eat uh, of this bread and drink of this cup. One day when you return, Jesus, we're told that you'll set foot on that Mount of Olives again, that your kingdom will have no end. Lord, you ascended from the Mount of Olives. You prayed on the Mount of Olives. You're coming back to the Mount of Olives. And we just want to join in and, and remember you until that day happens. In just your precious name, Jesus. Amen. When you guys are ready, take, eat, drink, worship. We're going to give you some time just to spend with the Lord and just celebrate communion.